Hey, hey, hey. Thanks very much indeed for showing up for this episode 20 of the What's Racing About podcast, The Wrap, the podcast that ensures that you get the most out of UK and Irish horse racing. My name's Peter Bell, and it's very much a mixed bag in this episode. I'm going to be taking a quick look at the issue of the abandonment of meetings halfway through after deterioration of the ground, which is a current and live issue facing racing as I record this podcast. Then onto a bit of navel gazing concerning a very poor punting run that I'm on at present, with some ideas of mine about how to deal with this, followed ironically by a few insights I hope I've got into the Oaks and the Derby being run at Epsom this week. I'm going to be finishing up with something that's going to be way more joyous and uplifting about a racing hero of mine who died last week, and he's probably not who you think he is. Let's crack on then with the wraps take on an issue that sprung to importance in this last week. Racecourses abandoning meetings halfway through, following deterioration of the ground to the point where horse and jockey safety is compromised. Beverly, Haydock and Chester have all suffered this blight on their racing programme, with horses slipping on bends and some actually falling, with the obvious implications that has for horse and jockey safety. Now, in the age of social media and Google, everyone is an instant expert on everything, from macroeconomics in a recession, to epidemiology in the COVID outbreak, to now ground curation at a racecourse. Apparently, and I do use that word advisedly, the issue appears to be racing starting on ground with moisture in, followed by intense drying due to a combination of wind and sunshine, leaving the top more slippy than is acceptable or prudent to ride on. This, coupled with running rail alignments rendering some bends tighter than usual, and certainly at Chester in particular, this is very tight, this means jockeys were not confident about riding their mounts into these areas of the course, quite rightly, and despite the bluster of some race guys that jockeys were just being windy and were scared to ride, the jockeys' safety concerns for both themselves and their mounts were given priority and racing was abandoned. In a very real sense, you know, the nearer their destinations, the more they were slip sliding away. As to what can be done, well, I'm prepared to leave this to the clerks of the courses. They've got years of experience in curating the ground, and it may just be that these abandonments are a statistical anomaly, and meetings being called off in quick succession was bound to happen one day. A tentative suggestion may be to revisit the notion of man-made intervention to produce so-called safe racing ground. Basically, that's ground without any jar to it, or in layman's terms, that would be anything with the word firm in the going description. Now, I want to ask you, was there really anything wrong with letting nature take its course and allowing a horse's owner and trainer to decide if it should run on the declared going, provided, of course, that the said declared going is a true and accurate description and not a figment of the clerk's imagination? Some horses will act on ground as hard as a road, and some don't. But the trainer, who sees the horse every day, is surely the one best place to decide if it should run on the declared ground. Like I said, I'm not an expert in the preparation of turf for racing. My background, when I'm not putting together this podcast, is, however, in marketing. And it's that area that is of the biggest concern to me in examining the implications for the abandonment of racing. Jumping straight in here then, Chester's response to its abandoning of racing last Saturday was a textbook example for me 
of how not to win friends or customers and influence people. Let me just quote you the statement the Chester Racecourse executive put out in the immediate aftermath of the abandonment of racing there last Saturday afternoon. Quote, Unfortunately, racing was abandoned today due to concerns from the stewards and jockeys regarding the ground. The final decision not to race was taken by the British Horse Racing Authority stewards. Horse and jockey welfare is paramount and we respect their decision. As per our terms and conditions, no refunds will be offered after the feature race. End quote. Now, I'll just pause to let that sink in. No apology to racegoers or expression of empathy that a costly day out had ended so swiftly and disappointingly. No leadership, preferring to hide behind this being down to some faceless bureaucrats in the BHB, which, whilst technically correct, butters no parsnips with the racegoers at the Rudy on Saturday, who quite rightly would have assumed that they were the customers of Chester Racecourse and operations management for every aspect of the day's entertainment was down to Chester Racecourse. Finally, of course, short of saying, you're not getting your money back, now F off home. Can you imagine any more cack-handed way of handling this? The day out for the racing public has been cut short through no fault of their own. Most will have spent a lot of money on entry, food and drink, travel, possibly even accommodation, and certainly for owners and trainers, a horse's entry fees too. Maybe the offer of a discount for all ticket holders to another Chester meeting this season? Even a voucher for a free drink or money off food and drink? No. At a time when racing is having to fight for every leisure pound from families in the midst of a cost of living crisis, Chester Racecourse put an up yours spear on a cruise missile of disappointment with this pile of offal. Who the hell runs Chester's public relations? The Westboro Baptist Church? Yeah, yeah, lessons will be learned and all that usual mealy-mouthed stuff. But why can't racing in the UK, as a holistic entity, develop some foresight and contingency planning for this kind of event, which, as we've seen, is now becoming more prevalent? It's as if our leaders are determined to keep portraying themselves akin to some 19th century squire who, having discovered the eldest son has got a scullery maid in the family way, sends her to the new world for a termination. I mean, any more out of touch with the public and you'd be in the running for a job in the Conservative Party cabinet, for Christ's sakes. OK, this story is developing as I record this podcast. It's now the evening of Monday the 30th of May and Lingfield has been added to the role of dishonour today, with two races there abandoned once more due to horses slipping on a bend and compromising their and their pilot's safety. Naturally, social media has gone into overdrive, with it being due to overwatering, insufficient watering, watering on firm ground, and probably the sun going nova in Uranus, if you read all the guesswork masquerading as informed comment. I do think that clerks of the courses have a tough job, but... Their sole objective is to produce ground on which racing can take place and then to give an accurate description of that going, as I've just said. It's then down to connections to decide whether they want to race or not. I also think it's only fair that I should point out that after 48 hours, admittedly, Chester have offered race guys there on Saturday an apology, putting out a statement today which read, quote, We would like to apologise to race guys for the curtailment of racing on Saturday and the disappointment this will have caused. We will be contacting ticket holders over the next few days with more information. The immediate priority was to close the race day safely 
and we apologise for not communicating this clearly on Saturday. Well, to me, that sort of begs the question that if the priority was closing the race day safely, why were race guys allowed to stay on course until after what would have been the last race? I'd say commercial imperative, but I'm just an old cynic. And let's not be churlish about Chester's attempts to buffer up their image once more. My guess is this abandonment of racing is going to be an issue which is going to run and run. It's probably still got more legs on it and the rap will be across this over the course of its next several episodes. Okay, with a screech of brakes and abrupt handbrake turn into something different, though equally depressing in many respects. Whilst I constantly strive to ensure the rap covers all aspects of UK and Irish racing, not just the betting angle, and this is never going to be a tipping service, as you should have gathered by now, if you've been with us since episode one, it's daft to ignore punting as a key aspect of racing. In doing so, I constantly strive to ensure our listeners' punting is an uplifting experience conducted within safe boundaries of you never chasing losses or betting more than you can afford to lose. I like to think we're dealing with savvy, clued-up racing fans who, whilst having fun in their betting, do like to take it seriously because that's certainly the approach I have when putting my money down. All of which is by way of teeing you up to let you know that I'm in one of the longest losing runs of my betting life. And whilst that doesn't suddenly mean I'm a problem gambler, in inverted commas, about to lose my house and car and family, it does make me question my mindset. No, the whole psychological approach to placing a bet in such circumstances. There has to be an upside to backing losers on a consistent basis, right? So for me, it's the opportunity on this podcast to delve into how I handle this and to put the question out there as to how you, our listeners, handle a losing run. A little about me as a punter. I tend to play in races where there is little information to go on and you have to be smart and or harder work in the rest of the market to come up with punting angles. Two-year-old races and three-year-old handicap races on the flat, bumpers and novice hurdles over the jumps then. The areas where I think I know more than others, where I have an edge if you like, is in breeding, speed figures and hard statistical analyses. You could say I'm a numbers-driven punter, though I've certainly no background in mathematics. I can spend several hours before a race studying the form, and on that basis have the discipline to come up with a no-bet course of action if nothing jumps out after all this cogitation. I tend to bet in tens and fivers, so I'm about as far from a high roller as you can possibly get, and I'm comfortable in betting in prices upwards of three to one. I figure I can intuit value in inverted commas at this price range, Whilst I can't at prices shorten this, something that 30 years of record keeping shows to me to be a basic truth. That's me then before I hit the race course or the online bookies. What sort of losing run are we talking about here? Well, I'll probably have a couple of punts a week, almost without exception win singles or each way singles. I'll fess up to having long-term multiples on the Cheltenham Festival, anything up to 10 months in advance, but as far as exotic bets go, that's about it. My last win single bet was on Edward Cornelius in a five furlong class three handicap at Thursk on April the 9th. Since then, there have been a few each way bets landed, but I'm not in profit and my confidence in my method and ability to read form with any degree of knowledgeable insight is shot to pieces and I'm prepared to admit that. 
Yes, there have been some insightful each-way returns. Pendleton, for example, who came third at 18 to 1 in a six furlong class 2 handicap at York on May the 11th. When I spotted the cheek pieces had been reapplied on this previous course winner, who was also £3 below his previous winning mark. Sound insights based on assiduous form study, resulting in insights seemingly largely ignored by the rest of the market. But by and large, my selection in the lyrics of the song Sunrise by Pulp have ranged from pathetic to piss poor. Now, I do have the self-awareness to realise this is probably very far from entertaining for the average listener. Nonetheless, I do hope it has traction with the vast majority of you. I mean, those who aren't living the Billy Liar fantasy life where every bet's a winner and they're perpetually in profit. I know, again through assiduous long-term record-keeping, that I have turned in a small profit over my punt in life, largely driven by the occasional huge win, back with a steady stream of winners around the 15% mark in the 3-1 to to 12-1 to price range on average. I also know with every fibre in my being that for the most part I get a lot of fun and excitement out of punting, but that it is very far from the case at present, with losing bet following losing bet, and worse still, very rarely my even having a damn good shout and a bounce as my punts resolutely failed to do what I was expecting them to do, and trailing in with post-race comments like, always in the rear, never nearer, faded final furlong, pulled up, or tailed off to really rub salt into the wounds. All of which leads one to contemplate the very essence of one's punting. What do you do? What can you do? Give up? Stop for a while? Change your entire methodology? Punt more conservatively, in the hope of backing a, well, any winner? Follow a tipster? Follow the crowd? Most of those so-called answers are total anathema to me. I loathe favourite backers, tipsters and those who jump in on a punt as it develops without any independent assessment themselves beyond just following the money. If I'm going down, then I'm going down not wondering why or how, but based on my decisions and my decisions alone. So there we are. The takeaway from this big old blues jam? Well, I'm damned if I know, other than to share a situation I'm in which I'm sure is familiar to many listeners if you're scrupulously honest with yourselves. There are no answers to this. You can't call up David Ledbetter like you can if you're a golfer that needs to correct his swing. You can't Google Martin Lewis like you can if you're on the verge of penury and need some money-saving tips. Nope, it's a case of physician, heal thyself. Or in my case, being a numbers bod and a stats freak, physicist, heal thyself. So with those self-made platitudes ringing in my ears, I'm off on holiday for the week after next. Far, far away from the form book, racing TV and odds checker. Time to get some level vibes, some sunshine, exercise and reconnect with a life outside of racing for a couple of weeks. And I'll come back to it fresh around glorious Goodwood. <laughs> However, having confessed as to how gash my punting is at present, and because I'm big on irony, there's the small matter of the Oaks and Derby at Epsom this weekend to consider. What can I tell you about the protagonist there that you may not know already? Sweet Felicity Arkwright in all probability, since these races garner more column inches and entrenched viewpoints than Partygate and Sabir Cormor could ever dream about. Nonetheless, I've been burning North Sea fields full of midnight oil on them, as you do. So, pin back your ears and get a load of this. 
I'm recording this on the Monday before the Epsom meeting, so of course all the runners are not yet finalised. At present, there are 12 fillies declared for the Oaks, four from the Aidan O'Brien Yard in the shapes of Concert Hall, Thoughts of June, the Algarve and Tuesday. In addition, John and Thady Godson are represented by present favourite Emily Upjohn, as well as Nashua. I'm measuring in on those two trainers since they have won nine out of the last ten runnings of this race. Certainly, if all four O'Brien fillies stand their ground, then you'd have to think he doesn't have one outstanding candidate to put up against Emily Upjohn, the present favourite. Or he and the lads, as he calls his paymaster at his Ballydoyle stables, don't know what the pecking order there is. If he does stand her ground and runs in the race on Friday, then Thoughts of Time could be a lively outsider. Her dosage profile, which, to recap, is a pedigree-by-numbers hack, Thoughts of June has a perfect fit to the last 10 Oaks winners. Her win in the Cheshire Oaks last time looked solid enough form, run as it was in a good time, with the winner looking better the further she went, with another furlong at Epsom looking to suit. Emily Upjohn looks plenty short enough, and while she was sent to Epsom for a racecourse gallop last week, there's still questions to answer on her ability to handle the track in the hurly-burly of a classic race. Her stablemate and second favourite, Nashua, has fewer worries on that score based on her impressive win on the switchback canvas of Goodwood last time out. The worry with her for me is more her stamina for this 12 furlong trip. Nonetheless, Holly Doyle rides, and what a story that would be if she, that is both Miss Doyle and the horse, were to win on Friday. Having talked about thoughts of June as regards the O'Brien Quartet, that thumbs up from me early was based purely on her price, which is currently around 20 to 1. Tuesday boasts easily the best form of the O'Brien horses, coming second to the impressive Homeless Songs in the Irish 1000 Guineas over what was surely an inadequate one mile at the Curra last time. She currently trades at around 7-1 to one and rates a better bet than the similarly priced stablemate Concert Hall, who was third in the Irish Guineas and is the most exposed horse currently declared for the race. With the moonlight is the sole Godolphin representative and that fact alone means she commands respect. Maybe she lacks stamina on breeding, notwithstanding her win over 10 furlongs at Newmarket last time. Rogue Millennium has a 100% record in her two races, which included the Lingsfield Oaks trial last time out. The form of that race is nothing to shout about, but she's been supplemented at the final forfeit stage by her owners, so they clearly have belief in her. Maybe the Ribblesdale at Royal Ascot would have been a better bet, but you've got to dream, haven't you? I'd have loved to see Magical Lagoon declared for this race because she hits a slew of my statistical sweet spots. She wasn't, though. Connections presumably keeping her fresh for the Irish Oaks later next month. Of the rest, Moon de Vega looks far too speedily bred to last out the mile-and-a-half challenge posed by this race. Kawida may improve on a third in a Group 3 race over 10 furlongs on a seasonal reappearance and may be of interest, but has never really put up a stellar speed figure in her five runs to date. She's a consistent enough yardstick, though. Ditto Tranquil Lady, who was ultra-impressive last time in taking a Group 3 at Nace over 10 furlongs, and could well improve again on the expected better ground at Epsom. But will she come over from Ireland, or is she more one for the Irish Oaks at the Curra? Ching Shui currently trades at 100-1, to 1, which is probably a little bit unfair, given she's a daughter of the Group 1 winning Madame Chang, and was staying on nicely behind Emily Upjohn in third in the Musidor at York, over what looked an inadequate extended 10 furlongs. Whilst it's hard to see her reversing the form, trainer David Simcock knows the family well, 
and 12 furlongs with a bit of rain would make her an interesting outsider for me. But at this stage, I'm interested in thoughts of June if she runs, with any rain adding to my interest. 24 hours later, and it'll be time for the 2022 renewal of the greatest race in the UK racing calendar. The Derby, sponsored by Kazoo, round the twists and turns of Epsom Downs. Whilst I think I've got some fresh, unconsidered lines on the protagonists in the Oaks that I've just outlined, I honestly can't say the same for the Colts running in the Derby. Like I've said, I look at breeding and speed figures for initial entry into sorting out where value may lie in a race, but I'd be lying if I said that has thrown up anything of real interest in the Derby, where on my reading, the market, as it stands at the 18-runner five-day declaration stage, appears to be spot on. Desert Crown looks a worthy favourite on his breeding, and the classy shift he put in while taking what is historically a very decent trial in the Dante at York last time out, putting up a very speed figure on my calculations in doing so, only adds to strength and confidence in his ability to win this race. After only two runs, you'd have to think there was still more improvement to come for him, and Sir Michael Stout is just the train to eke that out. Only changing of the guard has put up a bigger speed figure on my reading, and he too has a promising-looking breeding profile. After being opt in distance in his two runs this season, he's never looked back, literally after his front-running performance in taking the Chester Vars last time out. He probably has less scope for improvement than Desert Crown, but conversely, his experience and uncomplicated front-running style counts for plenty around Epson's unique test, and if he does stand his ground at final declarations, then he'd be of interest to me at around about the 7-1 to one mark. Like I said though, I wouldn't put anyone off back in Stone Age, Pisbadil with Frankie Dutori jocked up, Westover, improving speed figures with every run so far, Star of India and Eden, based on my analysis at least, and that makes for a mighty long shortlist. I'll also throw in Sonny Liston at odds of upwards of 50-1 to one, if he settles better than he's done in his two runs to date. He looks to have the stamina for the race. And whilst he's third behind Star of India over a mile and two furlongs in a listed race at Chester last time out doesn't actually scream Derby winner, he was staying on well. And, like I said, he put like a train throughout that race, so he did really well under the circumstances. Gone to my head this far out, and I say, like I said before, I'm recording this on the Monday before the race, I'd be most interested in changing of the guard but it would only be for absolute buttons and hand on heart. I can see myself not having a punt come race time. Sometimes you don't need to. You just sit back and watch the drama unfold. I want to sign off this podcast with a tribute. I'm going to give a eulogy to a real hero of mine from the racing world. I'm not talking about Lester Piggott. My involvement with racing began largely after he hung up his boots and though I know my history, as far as he's concerned, and many analysts whose opinions I respect say he was the greatest jockey ever, I can't really warm to him. Most of the stories I've read about him, purportedly showing what a character he is, make him sound sarcastic and selfish, and that's not someone I can remember with fondness. If he was the greatest jockey ever, like many say he was, then that's a great line to carve on his gravestone, and I'll leave it at that. Graham Dand otherwise known by his Twitter handle as The Foreman List. Now, here was a piece of work as a human being. I hope you've heard about Graham these last few days. I got to interact with him on Twitter only as recently as last September when I launched the rap, so I'm no kind of expert on the guy. 
but I was initially drawn to him by his cogent and well-delivered analysis of a race or a day's racing. I soon discovered the guy had also been diagnosed with terminal bowel cancer last June. He had a wife called Denise and three kids, Sophia, Olivia and Judas, I discovered in chatting with him. Oh yeah, he had plenty of time for me and for anyone who pinged a tweet at him. Furthermore, far from hiding his disease and treatment from the world, if he was going to die, then he was going to go out on his shield and tell his story with brutal honesty, bravery, and in a self-effacing style that endeared him to his many, many followers on social media. Now, of course, the inevitable happened. He never did get that one in a million break we all wanted him to have. Fighting this god-awful disease with humour and resilience and courage wasn't enough and nor was a great well of love he had from his family first and foremost, and racing Twitter a close second. The inevitable happened, and Graham died peacefully, surrounded by his family on the evening of the 25th of May. After hearing of his death, I wrote on Twitter something I still hold 100% to be true, that his family were lucky. Lucky to have known this huge life force capable of uniting the sometimes bitchy and small-minded little worlds of racing and social media, like he did in documenting the course of his awful illness. I knew Graham in the loosest sense of the word for eight months, over the course of which I'd definitely make him one of the most inspirational and courageous people I've ever had the good fortune to come across. And I'm fully aware that in the welter of tributes he will so justifiably receive for his life well lived, this one for me will rank as easily the least important and the most disposable. But, well, Graham Dand, one of our own. Don't ever forget him. That's it then for this episode 20 of The Wrap. I never thought I'd make it past 10, so major kudos to everyone who shows up for these get-togethers and takes the time to get in touch. It means more than you can ever appreciate. Drop me a line if you fancy it. Visit our website at rap.chat. Or you can even hook up with me on a new app which has been launched called Limor. L-I-M-O-R. Download that app and chat to me under the handle of The Rap. However, until next time we meet, this has been a wrap.